So uh, we're in, you know, winding down to the tail end here of the book of Genesis, guys. Uh, Genesis chapter 48. There are only two more Bible studies left in the book, and uh, we are done, done, done with the book of Genesis. And then, of course, following that, we'll be starting the book of John on Tuesday nights in here. So that will be a lot of fun and looking forward to it. Genesis chapter 48 this evening. And uh, the, the title of the chapter is really Jacob blesses the sons of Joseph. And um, we'll take a look at that this evening. It's, uh, what is, I think, only 22 verses, not too long. You know, it is an amazing thing to observe the hand of God at work in the families of people, in individuals and also in families. To see God's Holy Spirit move people to a point of recognition till they realize what's going on and who he is and, and what it is that he wants to do or some of what he wants to do. You, you get to witness the lives of backward people turned to the truth by the word of God as he reveals himself to the hearts of men and women, convicting them and by his grace and goodness moving the same people and sometimes whole families to repentance, to turning their lives around it and seeking him. We get to see the choices people make, choices that will in the end reveal their destiny, where their lives are going to go forever. Not just the next five years or ten years, although that's true also, but forever. You get to see these things. For those that choose the truth of God revealed in his word, his protection, his blessing, benefits, and the fulfilling of his promises. But for those people that reject the truth and seek their own way, whatever that is, destruction and judgment by the same hand that really desires to seek their benefit. As we go through the scripture, and that really is what we see over and over again. Just, you know, as we gather with the people of the Lord, we see the same thing in the lives of people. And the single difference, the single difference being what I choose to do with the word of God. How will I allow it to impact my life? And there are really no surprises to anyone to see. In the seventh chapter of the book of Matthew, at the end of the chapter, 726, Jesus says, To everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will compare him to, or does not do them, I will compare him to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew. It beat on the house and it fell, and great was its fall. In real life, it may take some time to see the results. In the scripture, you have the, the advantage of seeing 100 years in a few chapters or so. And so you get to see the outcome in the lives of people pretty quickly as you're reading through the narrative of the Bible. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 26, Jesus says, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Here in Genesis 48 and 49, we're looking at the last chapters in the life of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Jacob is God's servant. Now, if you had asked him that, 20 years earlier or 40 years earlier or at different times during his life. Are you God's servant? He might have had a different, and he was, uh, I don't know. He, you know, because his life was a ball of confusion from time to time. He'd been through some deep water 
in these, in these days. But he is God's servant. And his life will be, in the final assessment, everything that he has hoped for and more. The last day of his life, yes, has your life been everything that you hoped for? His answer would be way better. Way better than anything I could have ever hoped. And you know, that's Genesis 45, verse 28. You know, uh, he finds that his son, Joseph, is still alive after a good many years of thinking he was dead. Israel said, it's enough that my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Jacob and his family settle in Egypt. They go to the land of Goshen at Joseph's direction. Some of them even get to meet Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. In Genesis 47, 9, Jacob said to Pharaoh, the, the days of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. They've not attained to the days of the years of my father's in the days of their pilgrimage. And so Jacob blessed Pharaoh, went out from before Pharaoh. So Jacob got to meet Pharaoh and, and blessed him. Sometime after this meeting, the scripture tells us that Joseph is informed concerning his father that Israel is, his health is failing. And so we pick that up at chapter 48, verse 1. It came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on his bed. You know, when you're 130 years old, you don't want to take any illness too lightly. Probably a mistake. It's interesting how in the passage of time, our relationships with our children, with our siblings, and our parents really change. Our roles change in the passage of many years. In some cases, they even reverse. If you have parents that are elderly and you're a young person, in the passage of time, you're going to become the parent and they're going to become the child. That's the way it works. Now, you can embrace that role or you can, you know, drop them off at home somewhere and let, you know, the, uh, the nurses take care of them. The thing that never changes is the fact that we are who we are. And attached to that idea, there are all kinds of considerations and significance. For example, although Jacob is still the patriarch of his family, Joseph is really the caretaker and leader of the family at this point. For a child, especially of such a large family, it's not always a role that you have to take necessarily. And of course, it's not without difficulty. We get to see a little bit of that drama in chapter, chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. After the burial of their father, the brothers conspire in their own defense, just in case Joseph has some agenda against them, which he doesn't. And the whole thing just goes to reveal that the brothers are faithless weasels, or pragmatic realists, if you'd rather. And Joseph is the servant that he really is. And, you know, not that we haven't seen that enough, we get to see it again in chapter 50. Interesting how Jacob's dialogue with Joseph at this point, it's a little bit disjointed. You can tell he's 130 years old. I mean, he's still pretty much all there, but it's, he comes and goes in, to different, different. It's not really all that linear or cohesive, you know. Um, there are always things that you want to share with your children. If you have children, you understand this. Uh, things that the Lord has shown you, things that you desire 
to make a part of your heritage. When God speaks to you, there always seems to be a built-in desire to communicate that truth that he's given you to others. This is the thing that happens when people become followers of Christ. You know, before I was a believer in Christ, I believed the Bible was mythology. And I considered myself to be a pretty intellectual person. And I thought, you know, it's just you know, stuff that people wrote a long time ago because they didn't have the advantage of scientific understanding. Or maybe they were trying to control other people. And so, you know, and I, I went on like this for years. I, I formed that opinion when I was about 12 years old. And I continued to be of that mind until I was in my early 20s. And so you can imagine how shocked I was when I found out that the Bible actually is the Word of God. And that God actually wanted to speak to me directly through the words. Flipped me out pretty badly, um, to say the least. But when God speaks to you, you have this insatiable desire to tell people. You're never going to believe what God told me. And people start looking at you like you have three noses. You know, they're like, God, you know, seriously, that's what you get, you know. And coming out of the drug culture, people instantly thought, well, you know, you just, you did one too many, brother. You just, Siri, I heard that. People just flat out told me that in my face. You know, you just flipped out. No, no, no. God's real. Bible. Blah, blah. Some people get it. Some people don't. It's not my, that's my, it's between them and God, really, at that point. I can't, I'm never going to make anybody believe. I'm never going to convince anybody that the Bible is the Word of God. God is the only one who can do that. But um, it is amazing how you are compelled to want to share the things and so much more with people you love, like your family. You want to tell them. The things God shows us are so beyond amazing. They dwarf all the knowledge, everything in this world you could ever hear. The things in this world that have flipped you out of your mind when you've heard them, you know, you're like, what? Prince died? No way. I mean, whatever, you know? Seriously, though, when you hear stuff like that, or whatever it is, it's you, okay, how old is he, 25? Anyway, but the stuff that God tells you, and the reason that God's words are so much more amazing than the things you hear in this world is because of the source. Because it is coming. God, God just says, hello. And you're like, you're, you're, you know, you're about to lose it. He, he flips you out. We understand where we are, more or less. And I say that, you know, more or less, because there are a lot of people in this world that really don't have any idea where they are at all. You know, I watched this thing on YouTube the other day, the Jimmy Kimmel show with him going out, one of his people out on the street talking to people about the, the landing on Pluto. Did you see the recent landing on Pluto when the astronauts sat down? Oh, yeah, that was so cool. It was amazing. Yeah, wasn't it? So, Did it freak you out when the guy took his helmet off? No, no, you know, those guys know what they're doing. It's cool. Do you know where you are right now? Oh, yeah, yeah, this is the Titanic. I know. Okay, let's let's... At least we are persuaded that we know where we are. We think we know where we are. But as parents and grandparents, check it out. There is an understanding of how we got here that younger people do not necessarily have. Now, some may have more, some may have less. But as a parent and a grandparent, if you're a person endued with wisdom, if you've been walking with God for years, you have an understanding about where you are, how you got here. You also have a little bit of insight into where things are going that younger people may or may not have. Desire to communicate that about how we got where we are and what that means concerning where we're going. Uh, 
you know, apart from your last will and testament, that is our last best effort to instruct and encourage and to really love our families. And this is what parents do every day. And Jacob, Israel here is no different. There are two little historical diversions in this chapter, verses 3 and 4, and then again in verse 7. He kind of deviates from what he's talking about and goes back into the past and talks about stuff. Here in verse 3, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make you a multitude of people. And give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. Now, I'm, I'm certain that Joseph had heard this from his father before, maybe, maybe numerous times. Okay, This is a central part of the collective history of the children of Israel. And it may be that Manasseh and Ephraim had not. And so this is important as they will hand it down to their children for generations to come. It really is the briefest possible recounting of God's hand upon Jacob and his family. And you can really synthesize it down into seven, seven points. God Almighty appeared to me. Now, the word God Almighty is important. It's the Hebrew word El Shaddai. And it actually, it only shows up four times in the scripture before this point. And they're all in Genesis. You can judge for yourself how important it is by where this name of God shows up. Genesis 17, 1, Abram was 99 years old. Lord appeared to him, said unto him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be perfect. In Genesis 17, 1, you guys, this is following Hagar, following the birth of Ishmael, the progenitor of the Islamic nations or the Arabic nations, if you'd rather. Uh, 13 years of silence. We have no account of God speaking to Abraham at all for 13 years. And then all of a sudden in 17.1, God shows up. I am God Almighty. You walk before me. You be perfect. And not only that, but this is also the chapter where God changes Abraham's name from Abram to Abraham. Changes Sarah's name from Sarai to Sarah and names Isaac and tells him you're going to, this time next year, your wife, your, your 90 year old wife is going to have a baby. The name is used in Genesis 28 in the passage where Jacob, he's recounting to us here in chapter 48 as he was leaving Canaan, heading to Syria to be with his uncle Laban. And he has that dream of angels going up and down the ladder and God speaks to him. The name God Almighty is used there. It's used in chapter 35 when he is renamed Israel by the angel. And then in Genesis 43, when jo- Jacob instructs his sons to receive favor from the Lord as they go to take Benjamin to meet the Egyptian to buy some food. They're going down to see Joseph. Actually, they don't know that, actually, but that's the case. And he uses the name of God Almighty. So we can judge from the way that it's used that the name is huge. Second thing, he says this took place in Luz in the land of Canaan. Jacob saw it as significant that this promise from God took place in Luz. Uh, soon to be known as Bethel in the land of, of Canaan. But more importantly, it was in what we know today as the land of Israel. Thirdly, God Almighty blessed him. Past tense. It's a done deal. It's interesting how all three of these men had extended periods of time, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had extended periods of time when they would likely have seen God's blessing in their life as non-existent. The 13 years after Ishmael is born, 
where God does not speak to Abraham? What if you came up to him in the middle of that and said, how's your relationship with God, Abraham? How's things going? You know, chances are his perspective would have been not so rosy. What about the 20 years of Jacob's exile in Syria when he's up living with his uncle? If you talk to his father, Isaac, how's your relationship? You know, how's, how's your family heritage going? How's this promise of God thing? Well, you know, Isaac couldn't see. He was blind. He hadn't seen his sons. He knew his son Esau was, you know, living like the world, going to hell on a jet plane. But his son Isaac, who had the promise, or, I mean, Jacob, who had the promise, hadn't seen him in more than 20 years. And then the 22 years that Jacob believed Joseph was dead. How did, how did Jacob carry that? How did he see that as God fulfilling his promise through that time? However, what did God do? And he blessed me. Past tense. It happened. I trusted God. I obeyed God. And he blessed me. The fourth thing he said, and behold, I will make you fruitful. And he did. You know, not happenstance, not coincidence, not your efforts. God's going to do it. He will make you fruitful. It's a very broad term in implying a lot of things. God provides for you. God gives you children, all those things. He's done it. And multiply you, more specific, relating to descendants. Also a done deal. He's got 75 people traveled with him to Egypt. And six, make you a multitude of people. Maybe not a multitude yet, but it's a work in progress. And it's really, you see, God's made promises to you in your life. Do you know what they are? Do you expect God to be true to his word? Do you expect God to keep the promises that he's made to you? Do you take ownership of those things that God, you should? I mean, is the Bible the word of God or is it not? If you don't know, then I honestly, I kind of wonder what you're doing here. If you don't know if the Bible's the word of God, then, you know, you're out there without a compass. You really are. You need to find out. You need to pray for God to speak to you, open the book and start reading the Gospel of John and God will speak to you. He will reveal himself to you in a a powerful way. He'll do it. And then you'll know and then you can begin to lay claim upon his word for your life. It's not nothing you deserve, but his promise is that he will do these things for you. Finally, the seventh thing he says, and I will give you this land. Speaking of Bethel and Canaan, the land that is today is called Israel which didn't belong to Jewish people for 2,000 years, from about somewhere in between 70 and 135 A.D. By 135 A.D., all the Jewish people were pretty much, it was illegal under Roman law for Jewish people to get together, more than two people in one place, in the land of Palestine. They changed the name from Judea to Palestine in 135 A.D. And from that time until 1948, there was no legal Jewish nation on the face of the earth. And so the British protectorate and the UN and all their friends got together and decided that they would make this a Jewish nation. How nice of them to fulfill the word of God. You know, I mean, that's, that's exactly what they did. And so, and we're fighting about this to today, aren't we? There are huge political forces involved in trying to say that this is not a Jewish land. This does not belong to Jewish people. Some interesting details about current events in the political landscape in Israel is changing sometimes dramatically day to day. Last couple of weeks, an interesting thing's taken place between Egypt and Saudi Arabia that seriously impacts Israel. Um, in the Red Sea, there are two islands that belong to Egypt. The Saudis and Egyptians had been battling over them, mostly just diplomatically, no shooting, for years and years and years. In, back in the 70s, when Anwar Sadat 
made a peace treaty with Israel, all the Arab nations cut off Egypt. They're like, oh, you're going to make a treaty with Israel. We want nothing to do with you. And so Saudi Arabia cut off the Egyptians totally. And this past couple of weeks, the Egyptians have reinstituted complete diplomatic relations with the Saudis. And the Egyptians gave these islands in the Red Sea to Saudi Arabia, just handed them over to them. And what's going on is that mostly through back channels, the Israelis are beginning to work with Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia is very concerned about Iran and Turkey and ISIS and Syria and Iraq because all of those forces are destabilizing them and the United States is not helping in any possible way. They're not helping at all. In fact, your president went to Saudi Arabia last week to try and talk to the Saudis to discourage them from working with the Israelis. And nobody met him at the airport. <laughs> so I was like, yes. He flew in. Serious. The U.S. Embassy staff had to come out to get him. The Saudis were in there. They they're, not real, they're not real fond of, of our president for some reason. I don't know, because he's hung him out to dry, basically, by handing the world over to the Iranians so they can build nuclear weapons and do whatever it else is that they want and giving them billions of dollars to continue to be the state sponsor of terrorism in the world. But here's the thing I want you to think about, okay? So, so the Israelis working with the Saudis and the Egyptians to work against terrorism in their little corner of the world there. But if you are Iran or Iraq or Vladimir Putin or Erdogan in Turkey, that's going to make you nervous. That's going to make you nervous to have the Israelis working together with Egypt and with the Saudi Arabia team. Okay? And, you know, one thing you want to probably do is you don't really want to make crazy people nervous. And so what's going to happen? I don't know. I can't tell you. I know that we're, we're almost out of April. We're almost out of April. And, you know, 95% of all the wars in history start in April. So we've got a few more days. and I hope so, bro. We'll see what happens, you know. Not to mention, you know, that the supreme leader of Iran most likely has terminal prostate cancer stage 4. It's probably less than two years to live. So what happens when you make crazy people nervous? You don't want to know. Remember, God has promised the land to Israel. Now, we're not going to see it fulfilled entirely until the millennium, until Jesus comes back. But all the same, stick with God because he keeps his promises. What does he say to Jacob back at Bethel? I give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. Not a lot of wiggle room in that, you know? Palestinians, no Muslims, no politicians, no UN. So that is the significant history. It's interesting that living in Egypt, all of Jacob's family here, they never lost focus. At least Jacob didn't. That God's purpose for them was unchanged. They never thought God had changed his mind and now they were going to live in Egypt. So Jacob changes gears here in verse 5 addressing Joseph concerning future generations. In verse 5, chapter 48, verse 5, he says, And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. For your offspring, whom you beget after them, shall be yours. But they 
will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. You see, what Jacob is doing here, guys, is while he's expressing his favor to Joseph, he's actually changing the order of inheritance for his 12 sons. Very important. The traditional order of inheritance for these 12 guys is the order of birth. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, and Benjamin. All 12 of them, okay? The worldly significance being that the firstborn inherits twice as much as everybody else. So you you bust it up into 13 portions. Firstborn gets two. Everybody else gets one. And that's the way the, the inheritance cycle works in their world. So what Jacob is doing here by... Legally adopting Ephraim and Manasseh, and that's what the language portends, that he's actually adopting these two kids. He's making Joseph the firstborn because he's giving his two sons each an equal inheritance share with the rest of his sons. They will inherit as the children of Jacob. They're, in fact, being adopted. Now, this is interesting little Bible trivia stuff. This is one of the reasons we wind up with so many interesting variations on the 12 tribes in the scriptures because including Ephraim and Manasseh, there are 13 names. And if you include Joseph, there are 14. And they all show up in different orders, with some left out in different places, and there's significance to these things. Why they are. like, For instance, if you look at uh, Numbers chapter 1, uh, as they're doing the genealogy of the beginning, genealogy of the beginning of Numbers is about uh, a census for warfare to find out how many males are available for the army. And you got Reuben, Simeon, Iskar, Zebulun, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, Dan, Asher, Gad, Naphtali. No Levi. And the reason is because Levi, the priestly family, doesn't go to war. They don't go to war. Go to Revelation chapter 7. You have the 144,000. This is really interesting. Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, and Joseph. So you've got Manasseh and Joseph. Which means when Joseph's name is mentioned, that's really Ephraim. But the Lord didn't want to put Ephraim's name in there. Why? Why didn't the Lord want to put Ephraim's name in there? Well, because Ephraim was totally stinking idolatrous. And they went into captivity with the Assyrians. And they were worshipping the, the golden calves, right? They didn't worship at the temple. And so Ephraim, you know, we just forget your name. You, you have to be one of the 144,000, but your name doesn't show up, you know. And the other one that's, that's absent here is... Uh, um, Dan in, in Revelation and uh, the situation with Dan, Dan also being very far in the north, is not listed with 144,000. So when you read the scripture, you read a listing of the 12 tribes, pay attention that they vary from place to place for different reasons. So yes, there are 12 tribes and yes, there are 14 names and they're not listed uniformly in anywhere stemming from Jacob's decision here. In chapter 48. Why does he do this? Well, he wants to be favorable to Joseph. Joseph has saved the family, basically. Saved the nation. He is God's servant to preserve the nation. But I, personally, I kind of suspect something a little bit more selfish than that. Um, You see, Jacob did not hold all his children in in equalist. My wife has this idea that, you know, you have to be totally equal with all the kids and grandkids, you know. You can't do that. There is not, there's not that, you know, there's a time to bless one kid more than another and a time to bless the other kid more than that one. I mean, you love them all, even the knuckleheads, you know, you love them too, but you know, you, 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 
you can't be. If you strive to be perfectly equal with everybody, you're going to you know, mess yourself up in legalism. It's just kind of dumb, I think. Don't tell my wife I said that. Anyway, <laughs> it's my, she knows what I think, you know, but seriously, you know, and, and Joseph, Jacob, you know, he really, um, I mean, it's pretty plain as you go through the scripture that, uh, back in chapter 44, Judah is explaining to Joseph before they knew he was Joseph when they still thought he was an Egyptian. He's explaining to him why they couldn't leave Benjamin in Egypt. And he's quoting his father, Jacob, Genesis forty four twenty seven. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And one went out from me and I said, surely he's torn in pieces and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me and calamity befalls him, you will bring down my gray head with sorrow to the grave. Listen to that. My wife bore me two sons. He says that like he had one wife. When, of course, we know he had four. But I, I'm afraid that actually in his mind, you see, he saw Rachel as different than these other ladies in his life. He really did. His relationship with Rachel was very different than the other. He, he, I mean, he like storybook fell in love with this girl the first time he ever saw her. He's out there, she's herding sheep, and he goes over and it says, and he kissed her, and you're like, what's going on there? Wow. Um, to that point, he, he's talking to Joseph here. And again, maybe one of the last private conversations they will ever have together. He remembers the events of years gone by that have made his life what it is. Look at verse 7, Genesis 48, 7. It says, But as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrathah. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrathah. That is Bethlehem. Now, you know, guys, God's plan for you is never going to be your plan. It's not going to happen. You know, all the, all the wonderful things that you would like for God to do in your life, he's not going to work it out the way that you think he should. If you give him a free hand, he will do better than you can imagine. Certainly not the path that jo- Jacob planned for his life. No, nobody's life ever follows their plan. And if you go back to chapter 35, returning from Syria, Jacob had just relaunched the family in a new spiritual beginning. They put away all the household idols. They'd taken with them and, and even the ceremonial earrings that had idolatrous implications. He took them all from everybody. They traveled to Bethel, the place where God had spoken to him, built an altar there. And he, even God appeared to him again and confirmed the promises he had made. And then as he headed south to Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Rachel went into labor and gave birth and the Lord took her. She was gone just that fast. He set up a pillar on her grave. He buried her on the way just a few miles north of Bethlehem there. You know, it doesn't say anything about mourning. Um, Well, they had just lost Rebecca's nurse, Deborah. And some days before that, and it was a very difficult time for the family, for the whole family. Um, men don't always wear their feelings for everybody to see, you know. Uh, it never means that they have no feelings. And I think for jo- Jacob to mention this to Joseph so many years later, I think it's safe to say that 
the thoughts of that day were never far from him. It's probably something he thought about every single day. Everyone knew that Joseph and Benjamin were his favorite children. It was no secret. It's pretty obvious. In verse 8, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Please bring them to me and, and I will bless them. And now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. And then Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I have not thought to see your face, but in fact God has shown me your offspring. So cool, you know. Who are these? Old men never change, do they? We've been saying the same thing. Well, who's this little guy? (laughs) Just like your grandpa would say, you know. Same thing. Who are these? Uh, Jacob is grateful for the opportunity to bless them. Being as he is, he is seriously the recipient and the possessor of the promises of God. He understands his responsibility towards his family. There are not too many things that he can do for people at this point, 130 years old. He can do this. He certainly can bless them. Very similar to another scene some 60 years earlier, one where he was the one being blessed, except at that time he was deceiving his all but blind father to steal his brother's blessing. And 60 years later, here he is, just like his father. His eyes have gone dim with age so that he could not see. Runs in the family. Fortunately for him, he's dealing with Joseph, a man of great integrity and and great authority. Um, Interesting to think back. By 70, 70 years of age, Jacob had nothing. He was living in his father's house, hanging out with his mom. Okay? Here we are. Joseph is somewhere in the neighborhood of 45 years old and is one of the most powerful men in the world. I mean, he runs the nation of Egypt. Pretty wild. And his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, we don't know much about them at this point. They are certainly growing up as part of the privileged class of Egypt, in spite of the fact that Joseph's family status and the lines of racial separation are very clearly drawn in Egypt. You know, there was no political correctness in the, uh, in the ancient world. People didn't aspire to that. The men and women of the ancient world were unapologetically racist and convinced that they were justified, just like Orthodox Jews are today. If you run into Hasidic Jews, you know, and you really nail them down, they'll tell you that they believe that you were created as fuel for hell. That's the only reason God made you. But, you know, now they, truth is, they're, they're confused. They don't have, they really are out of 2,000 years without a temple and a place to sacrifice in. They're not following God in integrity, but they imagine that they are, you know, going to all that trouble. Two sets of dishes, keeping everything kosher. Man, craziness, craziness. Unbelievable. It says here, as he's going forward, um, you know, and honestly, the idea, because, you know, Joseph's kids were half-breeds. They're half-Hebrew, half-Egyptian. And I'm sure that made it very difficult for them. But, you know, difficulty like that has a way of creating character inside of people. You go through hardship, people give you a hard time, you learn things. Find out about who you are, find out who other people are, you learn grow. You get strong. You have understanding. Everything's easy for you. You you know, that's not always the best thing for a person. Jacob kisses his grandsons and embraces them. I try to only kiss my grandkids on top of the head. 
I remember my grandparents kissing me. It was kind of scary. <laughs> so I only, I only kissed my grandkids on top of that. There's a lady who actually, she, she was the secretary of the church here for a while. She, uh, she had a grandson. She told a story that she was tucking her grandson in bed one night and I don't know, he's four or five. And she tucks him in bed, kiss him goodnight. And he looks at her and he says, how are you even alive? <laughs> Joseph's sons have probably seen old people before, but Jacob is 130. That's pretty old. You know, he may have been something to see. But more importantly, these young men are going to think back on this day for many years. Their grandfather, Jacob, was something to behold, and he is the work of God. They may think, you know, that he's as old as 130 years, or as old as God even. But he, he says one final thing to Joseph that is an acknowledgement of God's favor. And at the same time, a little bit nostalgic. Look at verse 11. Israel said to Joseph, I have not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has shown me your offspring, which is a confirmation of God's hand at work, isn't it? You know what Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 says? Unto him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. God is able to do abundantly beyond anything that you ask or think. You know, what an amazing thing. Because that is what he does every day, whether we notice it or not. In verse 12, Joseph brought them from beside his knees. He bowed down with his face to the earth. Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right. He brought them near him. And then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger and put his left hand on Manasseh's head. So, so Jacob crosses his hands. See, Jake, Joseph had it all figured out. We'll put the firstborn on my dad's right. Right hand, hand of blessing. That's a good one. The secondborn on the left. He gets the left hand. You know, that's the way it works. And then Jacob goes, oh, no, you don't. And he crosses his hands. <laughs> Joseph is a detail guy. He was thinking about all the possibilities. Figured it out. And then... Uh, Jacob crossed his hand. You know, I think it's nearly impossible for us to have a clear understanding of the perspective of the people of this culture that we're reading about here, okay? And, and that's important. Because, you know, as you read the scripture, you need to try to understand where people are coming from. Because it really is, I mean, it really is like an alien planet from the world that you and I live in. It really is. Um, the people of this culture concerning a blessing from God that is passed down from generation to generation, father to son. Is it really a blessing from God? And the answer is, yes, it certainly is. It is God's blessing. The thing is, as far as we're concerned, we have utterly lost the understanding of the importance of generations of our family and the importance of the formality, generation to generation, sustaining of the moral and ethical culture that works in our families to you know, bring about and to preserve the best things about who we are as the people of God. Family is a good thing, and that's God's intention. That's why he created the thing. It is a good thing. Now, to be honest with you, in my life growing up, I saw family as a destructive nuisance or even a plague. 
You know, in, in reality, if you'd asked me at 18 or 20 years old what I thought about marriage, I could not imagine why any sane person would ever want to be married. You know, I had seen interesting and colorful things in marriages in my brief life that convinced me that there was no, no reason anybody would ever want to be married in reality. If you take, take a thing from God, a, a really beautiful thing, and you plant it in the world apart from God, away from Him, what you get is twisted fruit. You see, God makes things for a purpose. And they, whatever they are, they have to operate in the context for which God created. For instance, God created sex. He created sex to operate in the context of marriage. And in that context, it is amazing and wonderful. It's awesome. But if you try and operate it in the context of recreational entertainment, you are going to have a problem. Maybe not today, maybe not this week, not this month, but you are going to have a problem if that's your perspective. That's, you see, it's like taking a lawnmower into your kitchen to slice vegetables. A lawnmower is a powerful thing, guys, even if it's a cheesy electrical one. You take a lawnmower into your kitchen to slice it, you might have some success. You might wind up with some sliced vegetables, but sooner or later, you're going to make one terrible mess. A family was designed as a structure to hold people to principles that make and encourage a beneficial and a productive life. Family, when you live with a bunch of people in close quarters, there are certain things that will not work in a family. Things like lying, selfishness, Rude behavior, ignorance, uncleanness. I'm talking about physical uncleanness, thoughtlessness, etc., etc., etc. You make a long list out of that. Living together with a family encourages certain things in people. Wisdom, understanding, kindness, love, selflessness, cleanness, honesty, etc., etc. This is not a coincidence. This is by design. God made a family to function in a particular way. And these formalities, the formal aspects, you know, the respecting of elders, the seeking of God's favor as a community, the passing down of responsibilities from generation to generation, maintaining the structure of God's place in the family through the word of God. These are not trivial or optional in any way. To abandon these issues is basically light your own house on fire. And Jacob knows this. He has seen it in his brother, Esau. He's seen the destruction that it brings to pass. Joseph knows this. He's seen it in his brothers. And he has no doubt resolved that it should not be so in his sons. And so he is, having seen God's faithfulness through the years, he's covetous. He desires that blessing from his father, for the benefit of his sons. In verse 15, And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham Isaac walked, the God who fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. Let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. A couple of interesting things about this particular blessing. First, Notice, he blessed Joseph in this way. And according to the narrative. So, I mean, we understand 
that in blessing the sons of Joseph, Jacob, and the Lord, for that matter, is blessing Joseph. Can we say the same thing of our children? If somebody blesses our kids, does it bless us? Are we blessed when our children are blessed in the same way? We should be able to say that. At the same time, we understand that God's favor is in some aspect about Joseph, who has been a pretty amazing guy all in all. I mean, he feels the need for the boys or for Joseph, all three of them for that matter, to spell out some pretty specific terms of exactly who is the source of this blessing, which is always the case in any blessing. Any order, in order for a blessing really to have its full effect, it's necessary for the blessed to understand who it is that's blessing them. And in one sense, a blessing is a blessing. At the same time, part of a blessing for the blessed person to be moved by the gravity of how they have been favored and by who. And so the Holy Spirit lays it out for us here. God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. This is the heritage of the people of God. Going back to the beginning, and we all go back to the beginning, guys. But more specifically, God's faithfulness to our family. These are the people you are descended from. This is the heritage. This is the context in which your life will be seen in the ages to come. And when God, who is faithful to my fathers, God, who has fed me all my life long to this day, God, who has cared for me, how many men have prayed for God to make them a rich man? I would think a lot, maybe even most. Prayed, God, make me a rich person only to see it happen over a period of 60 or 70 years so that it might be a good thing for them and not so destructive. What if God made you a rich man at 22? You're probably not going to see 30. You're Not in this world. I mean, I wouldn't have. There's no way. But if God will take 70 years and make you a wealthy person, you might even have some wisdom to bless other people and to do something good with it. It might even be a good thing. It might still wreck your life. Money's dangerous, but it might be a good thing for you. It's possible. It's much more likely. The appropriation of daily food. It's interesting that Jacob says, the God who has fed me. You know, it's not a, a small thing. Uh, Stephen tells us in Acts chapter seven fourteen that there were 75 people in all who went down to Egypt with Jacob. You need a small grocery store to feed them every day. And I'm sure that the children, when the children were younger, when they were living in Syria, Jacob probably didn't eat until everybody else had eaten. When you think about God having provided for you these many years, no small task. And then when you think of how abundantly God provides for us, it's a miracle. In verse 16, he says, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Now, this, the angel here is a reference to Jesus specifically. The Hebrew word for angel like the Greek word for angel, can mean two, two different things. It can mean a messenger, or it can mean a supernatural being, an angel. Okay, And, and it's translated depending upon the context. Here is a reference to the wrestling with the angel by the river Jabbok back in chapter 32. And again, in chapter 35, God confirms the changing of his name in person. Angels appear in the form of humans in Scripture, sometimes a little bit strangely dressed, shining, clothing like lightning, but they appear as males, human males. No chick angels, guys. So don't you go out and buy those things for Christmas ornaments with it because 
chick angels are not from the scripture. There are no girl angels in the Bible. There are some angelic-like beings in the book of Zechariah. And when Pastor X gets to that on Sunday morning, he'll teach about, but they are not good things, okay, flying around. Only male. Now, somebody will tell you, well, no, wait a minute. Angels don't have their neuter. The Bible never says that. It says they're not given in marriage, but all of the, all of the nouns referring to angelic beings are all male in gender, always. All angels are male. So this is one of the reasons we had that problem that's talked about in the book of Jude with uh, angels, you know, in Genesis chapter 6. Things got a little crazy. Um, when God appears in the form of a man, it is Jesus. It's a Christophanes in the Old Testament. Jesus is the angel that has redeemed us from all evil. Amen. He did it on the cross, gave his life, shed his blood for us. And he did it for Jacob, wrestled with him at the river Jabbok, reconfirmed his name, changed to Israel. In chapter 35, Jacob prays that his name should be upon Joseph's sons and not just his name. Bless the lads that my name be named upon them and the name of my father's Abraham and Isaac. So we have the, the trifecta, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob already in use before the passing of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the real patriarchs. The 12 sons are referred to as patriarchs. They are the forefathers of individual tribes. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the progenitors of the Hebrew race. Now the name Hebrew comes from Eber, the son of Shem. Ham, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. Shem's son, Eber, is from we get Hebrew. Now, obviously, there are a lot of people related to Eber that are not Jews. But it, that's where the name comes from, Hebrew. And then, of course, you hear Jews referred to as the Semitic race. They're Semitic. Well, Semites come from Shem. Even more people related to him that are not Jewish. They're, they're also referred to as Jewish. The word Jewish comes from the tribe of Judah. One-twelfth of all the what we know as Jewish people. And now you read it in the New Testament and there's a different connotation. A lot of times in the New Testament when they talk about the Jews, they're talking about religious people who are associated with the temple living in Jerusalem. But they're not necessarily from the tribe, especially if they're priests. They're not associated with the tribe of Judah. But that's where the, the word comes from originally. The children of Israel, that's probably a really good name because all of them, all 12 tribes, it covers everybody. Children of Israel. Abraham, his name means the father of many nations. Isaac, his name means laughter. Jacob, heel catcher, but his name is changed to Israel, ruled by God. Interesting that God changed everybody's name. Changed Abraham's name, changed Sarah's name, changed Jacob's name. Didn't change Isaac's name. Why? What? He gave it to him. He told him. He named him to begin with. He didn't need to change it. He, got, he had the right name from the get-go. <laughs> These names are upon them, upon the children of Joseph, and the nature of the servants of God will be upon them. And that is our hope for our children. We know they have their own path to follow, but our desire is that their path will lead them to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth, as always you know, in an agricultural world, agrarian culture here, everything comes from the ground. Food, clothing, housing, transportation, technology, all comes right out of the dirt. 
It's all labor-intensive. So when he says, let them grow into a multitude, when they talk... When you talk about a great house, the guy has a great house. That means that it's powerful, but it also means lots of people. It also means numbers. Powerful, well-positioned, gifted, but lots of bodies, strength in numbers. By the time we get to the book of Numbers, you guys, 400 and some years later, Ephraim, males in in the tribe of Ephraim, 40,500. The tribe of Manasseh, 32,200. Okay? Somewhere in the low to middle range of the other tribes, the prayer is not for them to outnumber the other tribes. They are more than a generation behind. They're the children of the second youngest child in the family. So considering, you know, 72,700, it's a serious multitude. Dr. Clark said, uh, let them grow into a multitude. Um, Let them increase like fishes into a multitude. Fish are the most prolific of all animals. And the Hebrew word for increase in this verse, verse 16, is the word we get fish from. This prophetic blessing was verified. And he states that by you get time to Joshua chapter 17, the men ready for warfare are 93,200 between the two tribes. That's a multitude. In the midst of the earth, the Old Testament, as in the New, the land is very important. And this phrase, in the midst of the earth, implies strength and a position and prominence. Hey, where is Israel on the globe? It's in the midst of the earth. It's right, it's not on the equator, but it's right exactly in the middle of all the inhabited nations of the earth. Look at it sometime. So it's interesting that God's you know, re- reinforcing his promise. The old t- uh, now, look at verse 17. Now, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, It displeased him. So he took a hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head and to put it on Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father. This one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son. I know. He also shall become a people and he shall become great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. Now, a prophet in simplest terms, is a person who receives the word from God and dispenses it according to God's direction. Nothing too fancy. Really, I mean, except if you consider that hearing from God is something special, which it's pretty is. Jacob has been receiving the word of God for a long, long time by now. And here, finally, at the end of his days, he is starting to understand that part of his calling before the Lord is that that of being a prophet to the Lord. Again, in verse 17, Joseph saw that he crossed his hands. And uh, I mentioned before the reason he did that. Right hand is strength, power, and blessing. Left hand, not so much. And it's culturally, culturally consistent around the world. You won't find a culture where the left hand is exalted as something special. Uh, some are more tolerant, but there are pretty much no exceptions that I've ever heard of. So the firstborn gets the right hand. And who is the child of promise? Look at the history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who who is the child of promise? Ishmael or Isaac? Well, Ishmael is the firstborn, right? Ishmael is the firstborn. Isaac is preeminent. And nobody's going to tell you that Isaac was born before Ishmael. That's not the case. Uh, Ishmael was born first. But Isaac, Isaac received the promise. He was preeminent. Okay, And then... Um, Genesis 
22.2, God tells Abraham, he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. I mean, like Ishmael never existed or something. Take that, Isis. Uh, who was who was the firstborn? Jacob or Esau? Esau was, wasn't he? Then, then who was the child of promise? Jacob. Not supposed to work that way. Jeremiah 31, verse 9, and this is a good verse to remember. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. You see, here's the thing, guys, and this is important. The term firstborn doesn't always mean firstborn, okay? It can mean preeminent. And the reason I say that is because the Jehovah's Witnesses are going to try and take you to Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And that can also be translated the firstborn of creation. They're going to try and tell you Jesus is part of the creation. And he's not. He's not. He is preeminent. And you take them to that verse in Jeremiah 31.9 and show them that firstborn doesn't always mean first one born. It can mean preeminent. Important stuff. No matter, Jacob is not going to switch his hands to suit Joseph. Father refused, I know my son, he'll become a great people, but uh, his, his younger brother will be greater. The passing of time will justify Jacob's words. The ten northern tribes will be identified with Ephraim from about 950 BC. But even before that, Joshua, the son of Nun, a man of the tribe of Ephraim, And for a period of about 400 years, the tabernacle was in the area of Ephraim at Shiloh until it was taken by the Philistines and eventually moved to Jerusalem by by King David. Then during the divided kingdom, beginning with Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the capital of the northern kingdom was in Ephraim until Omri builds Samaria. And so Jacob's words are well-founded. Manasseh was probably the largest holder of territory on both sides of the Jordan, but Ephraim was preeminent. So he blessed them that day in verse 20, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh, and thus set you Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm dying, but God will be with you and will bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. So Jacob, first of all, he sets a precedent. He wants people to bless others with the words, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Great thing. And again, he sets a precedent of order. And throughout the scripture, you're going to find them listed as Ephraim and Manasseh. The only place you don't find it is at the beginning of this chapter when Joseph brings the boys with him. And it says, and Joseph brought Manasseh and Ephraim. And everywhere else, you're going to read it as Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim's name shows up first. He finishes his time with his son by directing him once again to the promise of God. Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm dying. God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. You know, when you recognize, guys, that the time of your pilgrimage is coming to a close, it has to have a profound effect upon you, upon your time with the people that you care for. There is an element of weight and gravity as the opportunity to share your mind becomes more and more rare and fleeting, there's an urgency and your ideas become more precious to entrust to the people that you love. Jacob makes the point. First, that he has made Joseph the firstborn. He's honored Joseph and there is nothing Joseph needs. I mean, obviously, Joseph is an eminently wealthy man. 
But the thing that Jacob has that has value is the blessing from God. Do you ever feel bad for wealthy people? I do. Especially famous people who are wealthy. I look at them and I think, and I'm being honest, I just feel bad for them. I feel bad for them. You know, people want to be famous and they really don't understand what that means. They really don't understand that your life is taken from you. You're no longer free to walk the street and go to the market if you want to, you know? And, and now that may sound like a small thing to you to be, but you know, there are a lot of crazy people out there, guys. You know, it's a terrible thing to have to hire security to go with you every, everywhere you go and not have the freedom to go out and just be a normal human being. Uh, and that's, that's a small thing. I'm sure there are things about being rich and famous that are much worse than that, that I don't even know about. But I feel bad. And, I, and you know, I look, I look at these people and I think, you know, here is, you know, this, this famous person or that famous person. And they're, they're working so hard to try and get meaning and value and benefit out of this money and possessions. And it's so empty. It is so empty. You know, if we gave you everything you wanted right now tonight, if you make up a list 100 pages long of all the belongings that you would like to have, okay, bank accounts, whatever it is, we just give it all to you right now tonight. Compared to that, the people that God has placed in your life that really love you and care about you, they are so valuable. They are so valuable. And especially when you are that eminently wealthy person, they're lined up around the block to try and convince you how much they love you. You know, People who've never even met you in person are just overwhelmed with your beauty and they just can't wait to spend time in your presence. You are so wonderful. Now, you laugh, but that's got to be painful. That's got to be painful. Instead of being able to look at a person and, you know, hey, my family knows who I am. They know I'm a loser. And they like me anyway. And I'm so grateful, you know. I'm surrounded by people in the, the fellowship of believers, you know, that care about me as a human being. I, gosh, I can't tell you how grateful I am. I call any one of you guys in the middle of the night, three o'clock in the morning, come over to my house and help me do something. You'd be there. I know you would. I know you would. If you don't want me to call, raise your hand right now. <laughs> but seriously, yeah, I saw that. but seriously, you know, I called David Monzo in the middle of the night. He would come to my house. He's, he's raising his hand. He would be there. He would be there for me, you know, and every one of you guys, you know, who has a wealth like that? Who has people that care about them in that way? You are so fortunate. You are. And it's not because people are deceived about who you are or think that you're holy or godly. I think there are probably some people that think that about me. I apologize. You know, it's not true. It's not. I'm just like you. Exactly like you, you know. But God is good to us. He is so good. And you see, this is the thing that Jacob gives to Joseph. The property, the possessions, the position, it means nothing but the blessing of God Almighty upon his life. That, that is the thing, that's the powerful thing. On the one hand, you know, Jacob has made Joseph the firstborn at the same time he's given him an inheritance. Joseph well knows 
that even though he will not take possession of it during his lifetime, because the word of God handed down to him, Genesis fifteen thirteen, God said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them for 400 years. Joseph knows they're going to be there for 400 years. And so Joseph will make preparations, something he's really good at, by the way. And we will see the evidence of God fulfilling the promise, at least in part, as these events are addressed in the New Testament. In the Gospel of John, chapter 4, Jesus goes to Sychar to meet the Syrof, the, uh, the uh, um, woman from Samaria. And for John 4, 5, he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. The fulfillment. Joseph ever go there? Likely. Maybe to bury his father, but that was it. In Hebrews 11, you guys, in the New Testament section of the scripture, we like to call the Hall of Faith. It's the Holy Spirit's recounting of some of the prominent characters from our heritage in the Old Testament, revealing God's faithfulness to his people, identifying him as the God who keeps his promise. Hebrews 11, Jacob's name shows up three different times. The first one is in Hebrews 11:9. By faith, he, Abraham, dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. And Jacob and Esau were probably about 15 years old before their grandfather died. So they were all there together. Hebrews 11.20 By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. And that's interesting. It's kind of the sanitized version of uh, Isaac blessing his sons. It was a good deal more complex and devious than it sounds in Hebrews. uh, We know from Genesis. The third reference to this of Jacob in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 21 is a reference to the chapter we've spoken of tonight. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. The word for staff and better, for some reason, got tangled up between the Hebrew and the Greek Septuagint translation, which the New Testament writers like quoting the, uh, the Old Testament in the Greek Septuagint. It's interesting that Jacob's faithfulness to engage his family in the promise of God is lauded. It's, it's held up as a great act of faith. How differently God sees our lives than we do. Do you ever think about that? God sees your life differently than you do. In a very powerful way. And let me tell you, in a very good way for you, God looks at your life very differently than you do. How little we understand of all that he has done. In the book of Job, Job says, In chapter 26, verse 13, he says, By the Spirit, he has adorned the heavens. God decorated the the skies. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. And indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways. And how small a whisper we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? We do know that the just people who are forgiven, the just shall live by faith. And when we are obedient to the word of God in our conduct and in our thinking, his promises to us are justified in truth. Jesus in in Luke chapter 7 verse 35 says, wisdom is justified of all her children. 
And the reason for that is he is a God that keeps all his promises. Thank you, Lord. Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for the heritage that you've given us in Scripture. And Father, Lord, you know how hard of hearing we are and how difficult it is to to breathe in your truth and, Lord, to take it as our own, Lord, to take ownership of your word and, Father, to walk in it. It's, it's awkward and difficult for us. And the world we live in makes it confusing and, and difficult, Lord. We so need your help, Lord, to go forward, that the thoughts of our minds would reflect your presence, that, Father, we would see evil for what it really is because the world dresses it up so beautifully, it's terrifying. And, Father, that we would see good for what it really is. Lord, surrender ourselves into your hands from our heart with our minds. Father, guide our lives to be pleasing in your sight. Father, make us an encouragement and a blessing to those around us. Father, fill us with your Holy Spirit. We recognize it's not a thing that we can do on our own. We need for you to do it, Lord. Fill us. Strengthen us. Encourage us. And Father, bring to pass your purpose in our lives and in the lives of our families. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, you guys.